0: Getting work done whether that's for others or for ourselves or you know whether it's to amass the load of wealth or to generate wealth and spread it sometimes we can neglect the physical aspect we almost tell ourselves we're machines and we're not
1: and welcome to everyday leadership a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and the life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I have someone who I've been looking forward to talking to for a very long time, actually. He is someone who has worked in civil service for 38 plus years, worked in a myriad of roles my face, Brian Commonwealth, HMRC, Ministry of Justice and Defense. He's someone who is a co-author of a book that came out this year called The Key to Inclusion. He is a trustee of Relate and also I think he's a social media director for Reach Society, which is an amazing organization that he actually co-founded, which is Social Enterprise, which is focused on encouraging, motivating and inspiring young people especially young black boys he's a husband he's a father of two amazing kids who are adults now so gonna call them kids and he's now the founder of crystal alliance i have Rob neil in the house how are you doing i'm blushing (laughs) when you
0: hear an introduction like that and it kind of goes back over i guess all of what you've had as a journey it does give way to emotions and i'm certainly sitting here humbled by that lovely and warm introduction to Chopin.
1: When you talk about what you've done so far, and I know with you, there's so much more to come, which obviously we're going to delve into and talk a bit more about. But I do want to like go back a bit, because before you got into what you do right now and the drive and the passion around D.I. and inclusion and everything else that you do, you start off in the, in the MOJ, like, I wasn't going to call that there, like way back in the days in the, in the 1980s. And I was curious, what was it like, like working in, in the civil service in the early 80s as a black man? Oh, wow. Wow.
0: I like the way you tag on as a black man right at the end. Because <laughs> a lot of that will be the frame through which I, I look back and see things now. Well, of course, when I started, I have to say, as a 19-year-old, Whilst my race and my ethnicity and indeed the colour of my skin were factors that presented themselves in other endeavour, namely my passion around football, watching and playing it, my school life, and indeed some of my other forms of entertainment, but, you know, raving and chasing good music and all of that, it surfaced in a very different way in the workplace. And for a long time, Chopin, I... I wanted to and decided, took a decision to deny any of the impact that that may or may not have been having on my career and my career trajectory. So I went about my business at work anyway, in a very colorless way. I can't be that accurate about it at the time, but looking back, 2020 vision hindsight is always, as Zadie Smith teaches us in her book, White Teeth, I was a firm believer a solid believer in meritocracy i believe that all we really needed to do to maximize our potential was to offer our best and if we were in competition outcompete any of our rivals and i for the longest while almost a decade of the 38 years you referred to that's how i set about my business it was never about race it was always about offering my best and it was always about on the two or three occasions that I was up for a promotion in that time, it was always about outperforming anyone else that I might have been up against. But regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of anything they brought to that moment, I was there to try and outperform them. And that's how it felt for the first, and more or less the first decade, just short of a decade. And it was only after that time... And after, you know, a few attempts, I mentioned three that come to mind, but there were other attempts to elevate or progress my career to a job or a role that was more in line with what I wanted to do. But actual promotion were were three attempts in that time. I failed all three. I look back at those failures, um, certainly didn't get promoted, but I, I look back at them slightly differently now. They don't quite feel like failures. They taught me something, each of them, mostly that I should stop trying to behave in a way that I felt others thought I should. That was perhaps the biggest lesson. But it dawned on me about a decade into my career that there were other rules and other conditions at play, some of them out of sight, some of them not a part of the published competition. There were rules of the game that, that I learnt, bumped into, experienced got slapped by, but either which way, they left an indelible mark and they taught me much of what I needed to know then, need to carry with me now, and I have no doubt further learning ahead of me.
1: Wow, I love that. I love the way that you've you've framed that for me, because that speaks to, the reason why I actually framed it at the start and I put as a black man is, for me, there's a beauty in the experiences that we have, which our race gives us. There's a beauty in the experience that gives us the how I suppose to see things and navigate things in a completely different way. Yes, there are a lot of downsides that come with it, but I like to focus more on the richness that it provides. And some of that richness, unfortunately, comes from being able to, having to go through some difficult periods and times. And like we just kind of framed out being able to like, I just went about my business and I learned the lesson. I took that with me and then I kept on kind of building on it and led into what you've gone on to do. And I'm curious, because you mentioned a younger you before you went into civil service. What was it you wanted to do? Was it football by any chance? No.
0: Well, actually, I say no, because my first conscious thought, my first mature thought, my first let me plan my career path and achieve any qualifications required and earn a living thought was to be a police officer. Uh, That's what I wanted to do. From an early age, I felt I could talk people out of situations, out of life-threatening situations, out of publicly harmful situations. I could bring peace to a given situation. I felt I had that ability through my spoken word. Not a superpower, but almost a superpower. I felt I could literally be a peacemaker. And I felt from an early age, I felt you know, I'm talking nine, 10, 11. I remember I went to the local police station and did a project around policing because I wanted to be a police officer. Don't get me wrong, Chopin. I didn't know all of what it entailed, but I knew in my heart, that's what I wanted to be. Now, the reason I say my first conscious, my first mature thought as a living was because prior to that, four, five, six, seven years old, when you're just playing with what you want to be, an astronaut or a brain surgeon or, uh, you know, a piano player, concert piano player. I actually wanted to be a footballer, yes. That's my consistent and constant passion. I grew up in West London. I supported and still support lifelong, life painful. (laughs) uh, uh, Supporting, wait for it, wait for it, Queen's Park Rangers Football Club. (laughs) And so, don't laugh, don't laugh. (laughs) It's no laughing matter. (laughs) And you mentioned I have two children, now young adults. Well, of course, my son saw sense early on and he supports Arsenal. And yeah, okay. (laughs) we have got a gooner in the house. we have got a gooner in the house. Literally, here on this interview, and in my yard. Mm. And given that they're riding high at the moment, and given that the young lad, the wonderful young gift that is Miyako Saka, he scored two goals today in England's opening World Cup game. And played very, very well. All the best to him. I supported my local team. That was Queen's Park Rangers Football Club. So back in the day of, you know, Stanley Bowles, Ian Gillard. And of course, today we've got Celeste Ferdinand, who's now on the board and one of our great goal scorers over the time. So early on, professional footballer, when I came to my senses and realised I was never going to be good enough to be a professional footballer, I was like a little whippet and I was very fast in my time, but I was never good enough to be a professional footballer. Never. My sensible option was to be a police officer, at least I thought it was. And then when that didn't pan out, the next best option was to go and work in the courthouse where I could still meet the needs of the community, people at least coming into the court. But my closest was court of the clerk and doing all things around justice, dispensing justice in our local community.
1: So did you actually actively pursue becoming a police officer up into teenage years and then... you made that pivot?
0: Yeah, I never went for any interview, but I actively pursued it in that I did a project when I had a choice of what I would study for my project and I chose policing. I actively pursued it in that I knew that you needed a minimum. Back in the day, Chopin, they were called O-levels and CSEs. So I I did what I could to get my English and maths qualifications. And up until the point of leaving school, it was very much eyes fixed on picking up a, a police cadet role or joining the police training centre at the Peel Centre in Edgeware, near Collindale. It didn't pan out. It didn't work out. It wasn't what my mum wanted for me. It wasn't what my girlfriend at the time wanted for me. Those were important factors in my decision. I reluctantly let go of that ambition and embrace, well, via a number of applications elsewhere private sector included. The first one that that gave me a green light was the Wilsdon County Court in Harlesden, which wasn't too far from where I was living in Northwest London, NW10. I started working there in October, 1983. After a small spell in Kilburn, working at a shoe shop, which was again, some wonderfully rich lessons in serving the public. You can't really beat that.
1: Nothing, nothing beats working in retail. Like There's a, <laughs> a lot of lessons you learn working in retail. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And I reminded my children of that. Both have done that in their early first jobs. You're right. You're spot on shopping. Nothing beats working in retail for lessons.
1: There's something I read when I was doing my research into you. Uh, between the work that you did in like 1983 or for the next like 15 years or so, You made a statement that said, you landed your dream job in like 1998 and it was that 15 year gap. And it really stood out to me. I'm like, you were working for 15 years before you landed what you said was your dream role. Like, how was that for
0: you? They weren't uncomfortable years. They weren't unpleasant. They weren't, you know, they weren't full of pain or anything like that. I was still working in an office with, you know, team spirit and lots of people, lifelong friends from that decade and a half. I was still managing and meeting the needs of members of the public, so it kind of met that need. I was able to progress to court clerk where I had sequential and subsequent judges to to manage to attend to to meet the needs of so all of that meant that those fifteen years again, looking back, I perhaps didn't feel all of this at the time, but looking back, chopin, invaluable lessons learnt during that period. Because perhaps some of your listeners will know, most of them probably won't know. But the life in a county court as a worker is so varied. You receipt monies, you assess official documents, you prepare paperwork for court, you prepare paperwork for the judges, you sit in court. So you're absolutely an integral part of the judicial system when you work in a county court. The challenge, of course. Uh, particularly now i mean i don't i wouldn't have i'm too old now I, I wouldn't have the energy or the strength Anyone that works in a county court now, my you know props I give them all the respect because it is like a factory now i mean it is just literally so busy it's ridiculously busy, and of course you know numbers have been cut back to the absolute minimum, so not that we were ever you know over. Complimented with staff, but we certainly had a fairer ratio between workload and people. And we were able to enjoy working at a reasonable pace and doing our work really accurately. There's a real lesson in all of that. And there's a real bonus that comes from doing that. So those 15 years were very, very enjoyable. They just weren't, you know, my dream job.
1: We live in a time where when people don't feel like what they're doing is fulfilling, It's very easy to just quit and it's very easy to move on and be like, oh, this ain't saying it, I'm going to something else. And that's why that piece actually struck out to me. You're like, well, this is not where I necessarily want to be, but while I'm here, I'm going to do the best I can do. And like you said, you enjoyed it and you'll learn a lot more, but you kept on working towards what your dream was actually like. And that's why I was like, okay, that's a really great lesson, a way of looking at life and approaching things. Because even in the moment of what you're doing might not be it, but it's about how you show up, how do you approach it, as opposed to just quitting and trying to move into that next thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely, Shepard. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, you know, again, as someone that's now closer to 60 than he is to 50, I have to say I fit the stereotype of older people who have a go at younger people but not having enough patience, but not appreciating that if it's worth it, it takes, you know, anything that's worth it takes time. My children now, as you say, young adults, they've had more than enough of that with me telling to them, just be patient, just because it seems to me that, you know, for all the progress that we make, the younger generation, whether it be millennials or anything else, they want stuff today. They, you know, they want it yesterday. Whereas back in the day, certainly in the 80s, if not into the 90s, you appreciated, you know, you almost like you pull a ticket and you wait your turn. And in waiting, you, you're not idle, you're learning. And after a certain amount of time, then your opportunity will come up. It's an apprenticeship. And after an apprenticeship comes the real deal. And that's been instilled in me for the longest while
1: when you finally stepped into your dream role and you started to do a lot of work around say the DI space, and those was quite you're not someone I call a DI practitioner in a sense, because you focus on a broader spectrum of the diversity, whether it's the inclusive leadership piece, culture change and intelligence. That big wider remit is kind of what you look out for me. So for me, that's more than just a DI expert. But when you stepped into that, what was it around that space in particular being a facilitator that really was your dream job?
0: People. What I came to understand about myself, uh, and I think that's key, Chopin, is self-awareness. But with that self-awareness, what that showed me was at the heart of my passion is working alongside others and having each of the individuals in that group, not just maximize their potential, but in so doing maximize the collective potential so the synergy of what's possible out of bringing people together that's why i love team sports that's why i love staff networks employee resource groups affinity groups call them what you will that's why i like the power of you know for the many not the few that's why i like anything that even approaches political endeavor and by that i mean community politics office politics, family politics, anything that's around political endeavour. And I guess that includes party politics too. For me, it's about what's the synergy? Where is it that people coming together can make it better for more people? And as a trainer, that's what I wanted to do. As head of cultural transformation, as I was at the Department for Education, that's what I wanted to do. As the co-founder of the Reach Society, that's reachsociety.com. That's what we wanted to do, is how can we make it better for more people, you know, whether they are here now or whether they're yet to be born and coming along? How can we make it better for more people? I once read, Chopin, you know, the ability to, to plant a tree under which you may never sit is one of those those great, great things. Plant a tree under which you may never sit, but it's there for someone who'll come after you.
1: So it's was very much around looking at the, what you're doing right now and how that benefits people in the future, as opposed to just looking at right now.
0: The thing about the right now Chopin, is it takes care of itself. I'm talking now if you're spiritually fit, intellectually fit, if you're, you're you know, physically fit, of course, um, almost goes without saying, but worth mentioning, because sometimes we can, Neglect our physical bodies, you know, something about our work pressure, something about getting work done, whether that's for others or for ourselves, or, you know, whether it's to amass a lol of wealth or to generate wealth and spread it. Sometimes we can neglect the physical aspect. We almost tell ourselves we're machines and we're not. We need good sleep, we need good food, and we need to rest, but we also need to nourish ourselves spiritually we need to nourish ourselves intellectually stretch and push ourselves so when we combine all of those uh, energies and including emotional energy and all of that then what i think happens is we are already able and capable of responding to the here and now and living in the moment which is absolutely a precious thing to do but we can also give some thought To the endowment we pay on the future, the endowment that begins to speak about intergenerational wealth, that begins to speak about after I am not here, what is it I can do now? This is where we start talking about, you know, COP and taking care of our planet. Because even if I have a good run, I'm past halfway. You know, at 58, I've got. 25, maybe 30 years if I'm lucky, I'm past halfway. So, and whilst it's true to say with every day that passes, we're closer to our death than we are the day. The bottom line is, what are we doing that feeds into the legacy, but still allows us to enjoy the present? You know, I still long to get along to Loftus Road and hopefully watch my team win a game. That's in the present. I enjoy watching good television, and that's a a relative uh, judgment call because what's good for one is not necessarily good for another, but certainly TV that edifies and builds up with some entertainment on the side. And those are all in the now, but there's also a piece about encouraging workplaces to be more inclusive. When you look at workplaces and look at the data and look at the facts, we need to be doing better in that because we're we're not doing well enough.
1: When you think about change, in workplaces when it comes to the data inclusivity and all that do you still have a lot of hope that a lot has changed because i know you talk about planting seeds talk about looking for the future and all of that kind of stuff but you've been doing you've been doing this for a very long time so you are probably best placed than a lot of people to be like well from where we were to where we are now yeah there's been some movement but does that movement actually inspire just to keep on going or does it sometimes be like oh i wish we could have done so much more
0: I certainly don't live with regrets about having wished I'd done more or that collectively we'd done more. There isn't much room in the way I go about my work to stick with regret or lean on regret or to have regret as a friend. What I do think I end up doing, Chopin, it's a great question, by the way. What I do think I do is my hope is really rooted in the belief I have that we are always capable of finding solutions. We are always capable of offering our best. We are always capable of doing better. And with the advent of technologies, of connectivity, we are getting much better at connecting with like-spirited, like-minded people who want to do good in this world. You and I have bumped into each other. And whilst there might be better podcasts out there maybe one or two whilst there might be better edni experts or people who work in EDI, people who have consultancies that provide for inclusion than crystal alliance we are both in the arena in our respective areas we've come together and i've seen some of your other offerings great work that you do to share and spread the word about people doing good things and I think we're getting better at connecting with people who are doing good things. And I think that's part of the antidote. I think it was Taleb Kwali, the rap artist, who said, in his experience, I forget the actual line. So forgive me for any listeners that are Taleb Kwali fans. They'll know this far more accurately than I. But he says that in his experience and his journey, human wickedness is often equal to human kindness. And it is we that must tip the balance. It presents the choice. Human wickedness is often equal to human kindness. And it is we and our spirit for community that must tip the balance. So the answer is in our hands. We must tip the balance. And I think we can. And that's where my optimism is rooted.
1: love that. That speaks so much more to what is within your control and focusing on that, as opposed Ooh. to what's not within your control and just, which is all wishy-washy. Like, no, like I can, I can do something with what I have. I can do something with the skills and talents I have. Therefore, let me pour into that, or using your phrase, let me plant those seeds. And we, this, we don't plant and harvest in the same season, but we can start to see those coming up and sprouting and other people will get there. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. So 38 years in civil service, that's a very long time, lots of different roles. Making that move into creating Crystal Alliance, what was that shift like for you?
0: It was exciting. It was
1: petrifying.
0: It was nerve-wracking. It was affirming. It was um, a surprise. I hadn't planned it for very long. I didn't know up until about Three, maybe four months before I actually submitted the paperwork, I didn't know for sure that I'd let go of my beloved civil service. And please note my wording. I, my beloved civil service, I truly remain in love with the civil service for what I have come to understand it's there for. Now, again, don't get me twisted. I think there are some people who mistreat the civil service, some people who have been elected. And should know better, mistreat the civil service. And I can now begin to spread my wings and speak absolutely freely because I'm no longer a serving civil servant. But I have a lot of questions to ask of the present government and its language, particularly around migration, around policing, some of its policy around taxation, its lack of attention to the gap between the rich and the poor. And there will always be rich people alongside poor people in any democratic society where people have the freedom of choice to do what they want to do. But I believe, and I speak with 38 years of experience, working with different shades of government, different colored governments, I believe that the primary role of an elected government is to close the gap between the rich and the poor, is to redistribute our taxes that we pay as working people, Jopé, to bring the gap between rich and poor closer, not to make that gap bigger and certainly not to neglect the gap. And one of the reasons I'm always surprised when I find or bump into a conservative member is their belief in the whole trickle-down philosophy that, that rich people will and can effectively directly and indirectly provide for poor people. It just doesn't work. And I think that for too long we've had in recent times too much of an approach that, that allows rich people to get richer and poor people to remain poorer. And I just don't think that's right. And certainly as someone who towards the end of my career ended up paying the higher rates of tax, I've been tested on my principle around that. I think it's important that for those who can, should pay more. And we should meet the needs of those who can't afford more. And still leave room show pay for people to maximize their potential. I don't mind if someone wants to get rich. Great. No problem. I got no truck with that at all. I can applaud it. But know this. If you're electing me as a part of a government. I'm going to make sure that we gather taxes from those who can afford to pay, and not let them run off and get even richer.
1: I was listening. To, you, you strike me very much as someone who is very value-driven. Whether you kind of approach the work, how do you operate in an environment where they're not aligned to your value, and you can't quit? You still need to get a job. You still got a family to support. And I'm sure there, there might have been times in your career that that's happened. How do you keep on navigating that space and still making a difference?
0: You're right. There are times when your values are pinched, at times when they're compromised, even times when they're fractured. The good thing about values is they will heal. You're not disposable in that sense. We can give our time, ourselves time and space to heal. And also, of course, Chopin, we work is not the be all and end all. You can absolutely Gather your bread and butter. Your main commercial return can come through a day job that may not be satisfying all of your values. We Don't forget, even within civil service, you have an opportunity to influence ministers. You have an opportunity to speak to those at the top of the organisation to change their mind. And that does happen. But at the same time, because we're that talented, we're that capable as a people, we can absolutely start projects And initiatives in the community, as we did with the Reach Society, that meets the needs and operates in a way that is separate to sometimes the government of the day, but becomes self uh, resourced, independent, not reliant on any government handout, which is the case with the Reach Society, not reliant on any government handout. But we set about helping young people maximize their potential, reminding those that may have gone off track that you've always got a choice always got a choice, you can always offer your best, and that we have a capability of delivering uh, good work if we work hard and we offer our best. Oh, wow. There's so many, so many. We're now into our 13th year. There's a highlight straight off the bat. We've been around more than a decade. Highlights include the number of role models that we've recruited, now over 100. Pilots, lawyers, surgeons, we've got journalists, we've got musicians, producers, we've got lecturers, we've got teachers, we've got photographers, most of them black men. We've now got a few women with us because the project started out as a male focused project, by the way, lest any listener should think we were exercising any kind of sexism there. Please study our history, but we're opening up. And broadening our gates now, one of our patrons, Marva Rollins, is now a retired former head teacher, black woman who pioneered the way for some of the black teaching profession. But we've got uh, Frank Chinemwegu, who's the leading prostate cancer surgeon in the UK, has just done a tremendous piece of work in bringing together a Society of Black Surgeons, which Lord Simon, or Sir Simon Woolley, helped launch only last week. There's some wonderful connections. It goes back to the point I made earlier, Chopin, about we're getting better at making those connections. So I'm proud about our longevity. I'm proud about the fact we're independent. We're not reliant on government funding or any government of the day to keep us afloat. We're totally independently run. I'm proud of the achievement of over 100 role models. I'm proud of the achievement on the every Friday, the last Friday of every month, We hold a networking conversation. Our next one is on the upcoming Friday, depending on when you put this out. But Friday, the 25th of November, uh, we're back to online because of the clash with the football. We recognize that not everyone will be able to get out and about for our networking conversation, which are now back out in a live space ordinarily. But our last networking conversation of the year will be online on Zoom. And all the details are available at our website, www reachsociety.com
1: and this year you released a book you co-founded or you co-wrote a book and in particular you, you spoke about the topic of culture intelligence which i'm sure is the right word to use but i'm, I'm going to say it anyway would you say culture intelligence is a new it's new and it's been around for decades. And we do the research stuff like that, but it's not something that's talked about a lot. But when you start to look into it, it's something that's really, really needed.
0: Oh gosh. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that. I, I couldn't have said it better, really. Cultural intelligence or CQ as it's um, known is the newest quotient on the block. It comes after IQ intelligence quotient, which is all about brain power. Put it crudely, there are others who could speak far more eloquently on that than I. There's EQ, emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. That's stuff of the heart, what the heart has got to say about issues, often inarticulate speech of the heart, which is a a brilliant album by Van Morrison. And now this new quotient is CQ, cultural intelligence, which is all about our capability to work across cultural contexts. So, it's combining the head and the heart, but it's more than that. Um, it's not instead of those IQ and EQ. It's not a competition. It's in addition to, it extends the way in which we interact across cultural contexts. And not to be restricted to culture that is to do with race or ethnicity or even nationality, it absolutely includes that. But it also includes organizational culture. It includes geographical culture it includes tribal cultures and of course includes national or culture by country so it's encompasses all of that and it says to anyone that's open to developing their cq that we can all improve enhance and do better by being more culturally intelligent
1: do you think that's the that's been the missing piece because when you look at the stats and the data around, especially work around DI over the last twenty plus years, billions and billions of pounds have been poured into it with this small traction. Do you think it's that synergy between the head and the heart and then looking at this across all these different spectrums that CQ does, that's been like some of the missing link?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Missing link I love. I refer to it as the secret source, but missing link, secret source, absolutely. That's what CQ is. And you know, for those who delve into it, you can find out all about cultural intelligence, by the way, at CulturalQ, culturalq.co.uk. And also if you hop on at Above Difference, one of the UK's leading suppliers of cultural intelligence training, Abovedifference.com, run by the brilliant Jennifer Izikor, you'll get stuff there. Cultural Q Co.uk, that CQC UK, is run by the fantastic Ritika Wadia and she's aided by Emily Dorschler. But these are wonderful people who together offer, certainly across the UK and now across Europe, parts of Europe, the wonderful offering that is cultural intelligence. And there'll be more because, as you suggest, Chope, it's so much needed that it's now coming to light. It's coming above the waterline where people are beginning to see how important cultural
1: intelligence is. How do you make the decision who to work with, with the work that you do with Crystal Group?
0: As it will read on my website, www.crystalalliance.co.uk, if I hadn't mentioned it earlier. But uh, if you check us out, that's Crystal with a K. We are a group of friends, actually. We bumped into each other at different points in our careers. A couple of us, no, three of us are civil servants, former civil servants. Through our work, we bumped into others in the community. And I guess there is an affinity there where we bump into individuals who also want to encourage organizations to be more inclusive. And I'm always linked with, I'm always looking to link with more people who want to do just that. Whether we end up working together or not is like an added bonus, but actually just getting to work, to be alongside others who are also trying to have greater inclusion is enough of a buzz for me if that leads to work then that's great that's that is a bonus but just meeting people who want to do more inclusive at work more inclusion work is what tickles me and excites me and gets me energized
1: so when clients come to crystal alliance and like Rob, we like what you and your team are doing, we like what you're about, we know we've followed your story, your journey, we've seen the amazing things you've done at the civil service, we want, to, uh, we want to work with you. How do you make that decision between those who are serious and those who are actors?
0: Yeah, that's part of the journey. You know, learning that, applying that learning and finding out on both sides of that line, actually, Chopin, that some are serious. Some are just looking to tick a box. That's part of the learning. Do you know? And I would be misleading you and any of our listeners. If I said that we've only worked with organizations that are serious or who really do want to make a difference in this space, that most of them have been most of them, but some of them you quickly find out, whether it's the lack of resources to pay a going rate, that's sometimes an indicator although we do work with schools where they haven't got a lot of money and we don't like to make money a deal breaker. So we do still have the conversation and see what's possible. But sometimes they present you with a contract, you sign a contract, and then down the line, you find out they're not really serious about about interrupting orthodoxy or introducing innovation or hearing from underrepresented voices. They're not really serious. But you know that's one of the things about Growing up in this space, Chopin, about linking with other ED&I experts, you begin to create and establish a really good, healthy checklist and almost a litmus test. And you can, you know what it's like, Chopin, you can tell people who are serious about this stuff. You can read them with your heart. You can read them with some of their responses, you know, and just like, you know, someone who doesn't return calls or someone who's always not showing up on time or someone who continuously lets you down. I'm not saying we shouldn't work out why that's happening, but when it happens again and again and again, and then you set those tests up for future potential clients and they fail those tests, I'm in a very privileged position, a very privileged position. And that is, I've reached a point in my working career and my working life where I can make a decision about who I work with. And that's what I'm going to exercise. Now, my work ethic is such, and it won't ever change, ever. I want to work with people and organizations who want to be more inclusive. And there are a lot of them out there. And where I can help that journey, where I can support that journey, I'm in the queue. If KA, Crystal Alliance, are a fit for you, we can come in and help you but I'm not going to insist on it. I'm not going to, I'm not in a position to anyway, but I'm not going to force anyone's hand. I'm not in it to make loads of money. It's not a driver for me. That's part of my privilege, Chope. I'm not in it for those reasons. I do a number of projects and pieces of work that don't generate a fee. That's not my first question. Now, again, don't get me twisted. If it's a company and they want to do a piece of work that involves a journey, then what is your budget? Let's look at what that is. It's not a deal breaker. It surely is. And again, not to get me twisted, I've got some dear friends who are in this space, an earlier stage in their career. They do have to think commercially. They are charging a required fee. And that's absolutely fine. I will pay that rate myself for people who I import their talents and utilize them as part of the KA offering. That's, I have associates too, no problem. What I'm saying is my, as founder of Crystal Alliance, as director of Crystal Alliance, there is an amount that I'm able to do and where I can, I do. As
1: father and a husband, I'm curious, what are some of the lessons you've learned in those two areas that have helped shape and mould you over the years?
0: Well... We really don't have enough time left <laughs> on the podcast to cover that. Uh, trust me, I'd sooner cover my 38 years as a civil servant. I think we got enough, more chance of covering that. I've been a parent for 29 years, and I've been uh, almost 30. Uh, my daughter is 30 next uh, in January. I've been a husband for 32 years. I think the best thing I can say about both of those roles is that I'm still learning. It's a wonderful journey, full of full of joy, uh, at times, full of anxiety as well, and some sadness in there too. But earlier this year, Chopin, i don't know how much your research will have revealed this—but earlier this year, let's see how good your research is. I became a granddad. Ah, you see, you see. What listeners won't know is before we started, before Chopin hit the record button, he was impressing me with some of his the- <laughs> uh, and it is impressive. He didn't curate the fact that I became a granddad earlier this year. It was on Easter Monday, Chopay. My grandson was born, Ramari Aussie, born to my daughter because I do have a son who is of child-rearing age. He's 25, but he hasn't had, got any children as, of, as we speak. My daughter, who recently joined the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, she's a lawyer by trade. She's currently on maternity leave because Ramari is just about eight months
1: old. Coming up for eight months old. What was that like for you becoming a granddad? Holding that baby in your hands. It was wonderful.
0: Holding life in your hands, literally. It was wonderful. He's as cute as a button. I, I am biased, of course. But he's um, full of laughter, fun, joy. He's got a cold at the moment, actually. So um, I'll be talking with him after we complete this. But he's enjoying life. He's got a queue of people looking after him, which is great. He makes us smile. so. It's all good. We give thanks to the living God.
1: Mm, I love that. One of the things that really actually stood out to me way back, actually, it's probably years and years ago when I came across you, was you talked about your faith quite openly and a lot, just the way that you approach life and approach your work, which is very different. And I, one, I appreciated it. But two, you also got me curious, like, what was it around, how is it your faith informs your work? And why does he also have that courage just to be able to speak out about it and not be ashamed about it, which is not always easy for people to do?
0: Yeah, I hear you. And, you know, some of that show started very early when I started doing school assemblies. And I was very, by then I'd become a qualified facilitator and a trainer. So I had an appreciation of imparting a message to a group of people anyway. I just needed to work a dial that, that, that turned it down in age or up in age accordingly. And please, listeners, don't assume That facilitating a group full of civil servants is a lower age than going into schools because sometimes it's the other way around. I can tell you, but more seriously, my, my faith is my moral compass. My faith is my reserve tank. It's part of the fuel that drives me. It's part of what allows me to really lean on a deep seated belief that we shall overcome that, you know, we, you know, at the center of me is not me. At the centre of me is the Holy Spirit that guides me at times, that sees me when days get particularly dark and I can't see in front of me. My faith pulls me through. And I do believe, as the child of a living God, that provision will be made. And whilst God encourages me to work hard and to offer my best and to welcome the best in everybody I meet, God also has me remain married to my potential. Those two will never divorce. I will always remain married to my potential. And whilst I am nothing without Christ, all things are possible through Christ.
1: When you were talking earlier on around the way that you approach your work day in, day out, that's actually what, what came to me as well around the Bible says around doing the best to God rather than just to man. And that approach is something that you've definitely taken all the way throughout your career. Thank you. Last question would be How do you define leadership?
0: You saved the easiest (laughs) question for (laughs) last. You know, I could reach for the glib answer, which is leadership is anyone who has one or more people following them. Anyone who has one or more people following them, that's real leadership. Uh, That would be the glib answer. In essence, I think leadership is accepting and acknowledging our responsibility to do the right things. I think if we step back from leadership and look at effective management and being a good manager, I think a good manager is responsible for and ensures that we're doing things right, You know that we're doing things as they need to be done, that we are doing things in the most efficient way, that we're doing things accurately, that we're doing things On budget and we're bringing things in on time. That's what a good manager does. I think a good leader and therefore leadership is about making sure that the things we're doing are the things we should be doing, that the course we're traveling is on the right trajectory, that the coordinates are right, that we're going in the right direction, that we're actually creating the right kind of future, that people feel a sense of belonging, that people feel as though they can be their authentic selves, that people feel valued, that people feel encouraged and inspired and empowered. I think that's what a leader does. And leadership is all about investing in those around you so that they can be the best version of themselves. That is leadership.
1: Another glib answer. That's a great... It's <laughs> a great answer. I really... Really appreciate that. And for me, it's also one thing I was talk about on this podcast when I connect with people, something around authenticity that really means a lot to me in the work that I do. And that's something that you not only have in just the way that you approach, but something that, anytime I speak to anyone about Rob, it's like, yes, like, Rob is so real, Rob is so down there, Rob is so willing to help. I know so many people have talked about how you've, you've been to them over the years and you've just guided and shaped them. So it's just for me, it's a, it's a pleasure just to listen into some of that journey, how you've kind of navigated over the last, said like 30 years in civil service, but then there's so much more to come. There's so much more ahead of you that you're, you're heading for. And again, for me, it's like your, life is, your life's work is never over. Just because you're getting older doesn't mean that you stop. It just means you get wiser. And the approach that you have just adapts and and evolves, but you just keep on stepping forward. So what do you do? I appreciate it.
0: I received that. Thank you so much, Ope. I received that. All of it. Thank you. And thanks for providing this space and the mindset shift. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for the work that you do and illuminating the efforts of others and lifting them up and doing it in such an edifying way. It's a, it's my joy to be here and to engage with the space and take the opportunity to respond to your questions. Some tough ones in there, you know. <laughs> but but thank you, thank you so much for asking. And and by the way, listeners, I got no advance notice of these questions. I didn't know what Chopin was going to ask me. He just sprung it on me. So it, 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 it's raw. You've heard it live and direct.
1: <laughs> uh, i i appreciate it. and that's why i love i love these kind of conversation it's just just real true and not rehearsed and nothing yeah. like that
0: no rehearsal no makeup uh, <laughs> it's just what you see is what you get
1: indeed so all those different websites as well as all the information around rob ka all that's going to be available in the show notes like i said get involved Connect with Rob, connect with the organization who are doing amazing work, and they can make a massive difference to your organization. Thank you very much. This is Everyday Leadership. See you next week.
0: Go well. Stay strong, good people. Stay strong.